I'm thankful for his faithfulness. Amen. Enjoyed that song very much and sure have enjoyed the week of preaching and looking forward tonight to Brother Davidson preaching again for us again. And uh, hope you've enjoyed it. Enjoyed it. Sometimes it's not enjoyable. I know it's, it's affected me that way. And I hope it has you as well that you've been uh, convicted. I, I think it's, it's important as we go through revival meetings. Say, Lord, what do you want me to know? Or what do you want me to hear? And then yield to whatever he asks you to do. And so I hope that you have uh, done some praying this week. I hope you've gotten closer to the Lord. And then looking forward again to tonight. Brother Davidson, come on, preach to us. Okay. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you very much. It's been a blessing. My wife and I have certainly enjoyed being here, and we've had good fellowship uh, before and after church. And uh, tonight, uh, if we're not around here very long, we're not mad at anybody. Not yet, anyway. Uh, but we're not upset, but my wife and I are heading home tonight and get to be a, one more night at home, which would be a blessing. And then I take off again on uh, Saturday up to Indiana, and so it goes on. So we're going to take advantage uh, this close to home to go on home, but thank you for your hospitality and your kindness. I appreciate the song we just sang, and that lady, I have no idea if she's married. I don't know who she's married to. It's none of my business. I don't care a bit. So anyway, thought I'd just make that clear tonight. <clears throat> and I was telling somebody, my mother did me a great service uh, many, many, many years ago. When she said, if people laugh at you, laugh with them. And I found that to be good advice through the course of time. And uh, we got enough hypersensitivity going on around here, including, uh, the, no, I'm, I, I'm starting to mouth off here about last night, but I'm just kidding. It was, it was wonderful. All right, let's go to the Gospel of John, of course, chapter number four. And um, <clears throat> we know by now that uh, Jesus has must needs go through Samaria, met the Samaritan woman there, offered her what she couldn't find in all of her life. In relationships, six men in her life. And empty and dry. And um, a Samaritan understood the religion of the Samaritans, left her empty and dry. And when Jesus offered her Knowing her, knowing what was in her, he offered her the living water. It got her attention. She was interested in that. Water that would actually satisfy, and I wouldn't thirst again. I could have this satisfaction like I've never known. She was interested in that. And then, of course, Jesus caused her to deal with her sin. And then she was confused, and of course, because of her background and her upbringing, and so Jesus taught her about true worship. And after he explained to her that the Father is spirit, and they that worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth, and the time has come, and now is, that it doesn't matter if it's, uh, it doesn't matter if it's in this Mount Gerizim over here, Mount Zion in Jerusalem, that's not the point. The point is that he must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. And of course, he was referring to himself. And uh, so it makes it known that he is the Messiah, and she drinks. And what would we expect? Well, we would expect some kind of change. Well, yeah, she changed all right. What a change. And we talked about that last night. 
And so now we're going <clears> to <throat> move into part four here and uh, talk about the disciples and the work that Jesus is doing. So our reading is going to start in verse number 25. Our actual text doesn't begin until verse 31, but let's just start in verse 25. How about we stand together for the reading of the word and, um, and then we'll get right into the message. Before I read there, I would like for you to look down at verse number 6 because this plays into the account somewhat, maybe more than somewhat. But look in verse 6. Now, Jacob's well was there. <clears throat> Not much more is said about this part, but it is here. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And we're reminded again of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Was he God? Every bit. Oh, yes, God with us, the Word made flesh, the expression of the Father, Hebrews chapter 1. God expressed to man in the person of Jesus Christ. He was. Was he man? Yes, he was man. He knew what it was to be weary. He knew what it was to be thirsty. He knew what it was to be hungry. Tempted in all points like as we are. Yet, come on, somebody help me without sin, holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. So he was wearied <clears throat> with his journey. Now let's look in verse 25, and we'll come back to that thought. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ, the anointed one. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee, am he. And upon this came his disciples and <clears throat> marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Now in the meantime, while they were making their way out, and the lady was making her announcement in town, uh, in the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. And therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath uh, any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Which the answer to that would be, yes, that he knew what they would be thinking or saying. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto eternal, unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor, other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors." And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him 
for the saying of the woman which testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. So many believed because of the testimony of the woman. Let's see, is that what it says? Yeah, verse 39. Many believed because of the testimony of the woman. And then Jesus stayed among them for two days. And not a few, but many more believed because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we, now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. <laughs> I want you to go back to verse number 34, if you would. Verse 32, Jesus said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And verse number 34, as the disciples wondered, where did he get it? Jesus said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Father, we are truly grateful tonight, again, for the privilege to assemble here. And it is a blessing, O oh God. I want to thank you for men and women that have given attention to the word. This is certainly uh, not been a congregation uh, difficult to preach to. It's been a delight uh, to stand before this uh, group and this assembly uh, night after night. And so I pray now for the unction and the work and the help of the Holy Spirit that neither from the pulpit nor from the chairs would there be a slack or a letting down. But, oh God, I pray that there would be an appetite for your word and I pray that you would help me to preach with plainness and clarity. I need the help, as always, of the Holy Spirit for this to be a profitable and meaningful service. We sure desire that it be. No, I, I, I doubt there's anybody in here just wants to be here just to be here, because that's what we do on Wednesday night, or that's what we do when special services are called. Oh, God, your word continues to make a difference in our lives in as much as we open our hearts and act upon what you show us in your word. So I pray again that this would be helpful and meaningful, and I pray that you'd get glory to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. You may be seated. <clears throat> pretty clear, isn't it, that probably the woman came to the well of Sychar to draw water, totally consumed with her own life. No doubt she was. She was miserable. Uh, she was unhappy. She was under the guilt of sin, the load of sin, the burden of sin. Um, she was no doubt up to here with the shame that she wore and the kind of treatment that she would have gotten among her own uh, city uh, there in the city of Sychar. She knew that she was looked down upon by her own people, by the women of the city, lightly regarded by the men of the city. And when I talk about this city, uh, it's not like it was just a little tiny village like Nazareth, but neither was it a huge city like Jerusalem. So people would know each other. They would know about someone like her. And 
It's amazing that when she actually took drink of the living water, when she embraced the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, or when she got saved, it's amazing that all of a sudden her interest went from her to other people. That's quite a change right there. It was no longer on her. Well, I guess that makes sense. The great physician just took care of her. That's a good point. Nobody said amen, so I'm going to say it again, give you one more chance. It makes sense that she would think about somebody other than herself because Jesus just dealt with what ailed her. She is now drunk of the living water, and all of a sudden the focus goes off of me, my, and I, and to the people of Sychar, and she goes into that city. Oh, my soul, it would be neat to see how she went into the city, the tone of her voice, the countenance she had, all of that. Please read all of this with imagination, because I'm telling you, this would have been a sight to behold. And when she went into that city, crying out to the people and the men of Sychar, come see a man that told me all that ever I did. Don't you know that that was a shock to their ears? That that was an astounding thing to her? We know her. What is this about? Wait, look closer. I've never seen her with that countenance. I've never seen her with that bounce in her step. Oh, wow. The change that came into her life. So, Jesus, her, his work in her life so affected her that the men of Sychar believed that she had met the Messiah. And the men then later that heard and met him and saw him and heard him, many believed. Uh, twice it says many believed. So this has shaken up this town. I mean, I, I've seen it in a hometown like my hometown. I've seen it when one or two or a family gets saved. Everybody in town knows about it. Them? I kind of mentioned some of that last night about the changes that, uh, that are made. And people know about it. Well, they would have known about this. And obviously the word spread around. Now, as Jesus continues to work at the well, as Jesus continues, we've got to understand that three dynamics are in place all at the same time here uh, for Jesus and his work at the well. There, there are three dynamics I want to remind you of. And I want to remind you, first of all, <clears throat> that as he was there at the well, he was wearied with his journey. Now, that's what the Bible says. I don't want to make too much of it, but I don't want to ignore it either. And that while Jesus was there at the well, the dynamics that were in place were this. Uh, he gave attention to, ministered to, gave himself to the woman at the well and dealt with her on that personal level. Um, Pastor and I was having a conversation, we were having a conversation the other day, and uh, we were talking about how impersonal life is getting. And I can remember in travel when I used to uh, sit down on an airplane and talk to people and have a conversation. I've met people, some that I uh, still keep contact with once in a while, and some that I did for a while. I'm just telling you, I meet people and talk to people, and right now, because of the devices and the technology, and because of the fear of somebody breathing on him or sneezing or something like that, and all of that kind of thing, people have become very impersonal. It's very difficult to establish conversations uh, in that kind of a setting than it used to be. 
And just all around it's impersonal. People working from home, you make a phone call. Remember, some of us are old enough to remember when you could call a business, you'd actually talk to somebody there that cared whether you got taken care of or not. But that personal touch is absolutely gone. And, and all of us are, probably a lot of you are like us. We still have our line at the house, our line. We never answer it. There's never anybody calls that we want to talk to, and there's never anybody that's got a real person on the other end anyway. See how impersonal we're getting. And a lot of that's carrying over into the Lord's work, and there are uh, men out here in, quote, ministry that are so excited about all the technology, and, man, I can push a click or a button here on this computer, and I can send an email out, and I can convey this message to this one and to that one, and I can do it by text. And I've actually seen, I remember throwing a fit when it all started coming to Southwest Baptist Church, and everybody had their computers, and guys sitting in their offices one door away emailing each other. And I, I, don't, I know you're going to think I'm totally weird, but I don't really care. I got a staff meeting and I said, no, N-O, get up out of your chair and walk over there and talk to them face to face. And then they would still try to slip it in now and then. And then in the staff meeting, we'd find out, oh, well, yeah, I got your email, but I thought you meant. And I would say to them, see what I'm talking about? So that's why you go talk to them and look at them face to face. There's nothing like the personal touch. Well, but you don't understand probably, Brother Davison, some of us are busy. No, I probably wouldn't understand much about that. But one time when I was making excuses for myself, for why I wasn't knocking more doors and talking to more sinners and, and, and uh, being in people's homes like I used to. I, I remember, and the demands were heavy. There's no question about that. And, and I was making excuses for that, Brother Michael, and it dawned on me. Hold on just a second. Jesus came here and walked upon this earth, and his public ministry lasted three to three and a half years. So when the Son of God, the Son of Man, came to walk among men, he had a little window like this to do what his father gave him to do in his public ministry and leading up to the ultimate purpose, which was to die for our sin and be buried and raised again from the dead, then ascend back to the Father in heaven. Have you ever thought about the short window? And yet Jesus sat on a well talking to a woman of Samaria that's about as low life as she could have gotten. Does everybody listen to this? And then we could just follow Jesus all through the Gospels and notice the personal touch that he had with people. And I guarantee if you and I could, could have seen that scene and could have observed what was going on, I guarantee you that with all that was coming for Jesus and knowing that every heartbeat and every step that he took was leading to the point where he would die not for his own sins, but for our sins. Him knowing that, I guarantee you, that woman had his full attention. So that's the first dynamic. The second dynamic is he stayed there for two days. The men of Sychar came out. And we're not going to go into a whole lot of that tonight. But they came out of the city to where he was. And then they asked Jesus, could you stay here? And he stayed there two more days. I wonder if they had trouble getting his attention. You ever try to talk to somebody right now that you really need to convey or tell them something that you feel like might be significant or important or at least it's something you would really like to share with them? And while you're sharing with them, it's this. Yep. And some of you are looking at me like, no, nobody ever does that to me. And others are looking at me like, yeah, I do that all the time. 
God help us. I said, shame on us. Well, I got a lot of things I got to keep up with. I got to contact here and I got to talk to you. I got to talk to you. And on and on and on. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And here's Jesus. He's got about three years of public ministry here. And he's got time to look at a woman of Sychar in the eye and talk to her however long it took and deal with her. And the men of Sychar, come on, the Samaritans hated Jews. They hated Jews. Uh, the disciples were no doubt greatly disturbed that they were even there going through Samaria because the way that you would normally go up to Galilee was certainly not through Samaria, but go over on the other side, Jordan, go up that way and go around through Cappadocia and that area over there and then go into Galilee so you wouldn't have to mess with the hateful and adversarial and filthy Samaritans. And there Jesus said, yes, I can stay. And he stayed two days. Two days. I've been trying to be a preacher for 55 years. My window's like this compared to his. And he had time for people. So he's given himself to them. So don't forget he was wearied from his journey. Does everybody listen to this? And the demands that had already been upon him. And they made this journey up to Samaria. And he was wearied with his journey. And then he meets the woman and he gives himself to her. And then the men say, could you stay here in Sychar? And he's there two more days and many more uh, believe on him. And so he gave himself to them while he was there. And the other dynamic that we have to remember that is in place is Jesus has a discipleship class. He has to teach on a daily basis. Because these disciples that are with him in about, what, 36 to 40 months, they're going to have to take a lot of responsibility that he is now preparing them for. So he was wearied with his journey, but he was given himself to the woman of Sychar. He was wearied with his journey, but he was given himself to the men of the city and many Twice, many got saved, and he was given himself to instruct and to teach those disciples so that when the hour came, that he would fulfill his Father's purposes for him coming and ascend back to the Father in heaven, they would be prepared to do what he is preparing them to do. See? So what I'm trying to say is he, he poured himself out. He gave himself. He, and, and he was wearied with his journey. And all of this was in play. The woman, the people of Sychar, the men, the disciples. Here's our Savior who knew weariness, who knew physical demands, who knew what it was to have some weight on the shoulders. Yeah, Jesus gave himself to the people just like that. Now, let's look at our account. And uh, it has a maybe to a casual reader, a strange movement to it. But anyway, we're going to look at it. And look here at verse number 31 through 34, where Jesus begins to teach the disciples. Remember, he is discipling them. Somebody say amen, so I'll know you're out there. All right, so he is discipling his disciples. And in doing so, he takes occasion now, having uh, given himself to the woman that drank of the living water, has work to do with the men of Sychar yet, and is at the same time dealing with his disciples, and Jesus begins to teach them of a food of which they did not understand. They had no concept of it. So we don't have to go into a lot of detail here. We can do this pretty fast. They come back from town, and uh, when they come back to the 
uh, well after they've been to Sychar and they've got their groceries in hand and they come back and Jesus is talking to the woman at the well and finishing up that conversation and the disciples didn't say a thing. Remember we read that in there. I'm not going to go into detail but they didn't know what to think of this, my soul. He is talking to a woman out here at this well and she is a woman of Samaria and, and, and Jesus is conversing with her and it looks like it has been a sincere and a very serious conversion and the next thing you know she's dropped her, her water pot and run off into town singing and happy as she goes uh, saying he told me all things that ever I did. Well she hadn't really done much to brag about you know but she's glad because the burden of sin is not there. And he has confronted her about her sin and dealt with her sin and has given her the drink of the living water. And so the disciples come back and when she's gone and he's there, they said to him, nobody even asked him about the woman. Must have been an awkward moment for him. They may have wondered and wanted to talk to him about it, but didn't feel comfortable about it. Master, eat. I'm not hungry. I'm full. I don't want to eat. <laughs> the disciples said, now what in the world is going on? As if this situation isn't strange enough. Who said, would she have some food for him and he ate it? Because they don't get it. Come on, they don't know what's going on. They don't get it. Did somebody come along here and give him food to eat? Because that's why they went to town, you know. Now they come back with the food. And Jesus is apparently not giving much thought nor much attention to it. I, I don't know about the disciples, but I would imagine they weren't too slow to dig in. And so they, and then they noticed that Jesus is not eating. And, and one of them spoke up, or maybe several, and said, Master, uh, eat. And Jesus said to them, I, I, I don't feel like eating. I don't want to eat. How could you send us to town, you being wearied because of the journey, and the food will nourish you and strengthen you, and now you have, apparently have had nothing to eat either from the woman or anywhere else, and you're telling us that you don't want to eat? Uh, Master, we don't understand that. And Jesus says to them, I have meat to eat that you don't know anything about. So there is apparently a meat to eat. Now, when he talks about meat, we understand that. Uh, meat can be everything. Any, anything that is consumed for the nourishment of our body can be referred to in a very general way as meat. Now, I know what people in Texas, men in Texas, I know what you think about when you think about meat. And I know what I think about when I think about meat. I'm not thinking about bread and green beans. No siree. I'm talking about beef and chicken and pigs. Amen. Somebody help me, please. And, and fish and all of that kind of thing. But when he, they, he talked about meat, we're talking about it, meat would be anything, and this is throughout the Bible, that meat would be anything that would nourish that to which it would be called meat or nourishment or food. And Jesus said, I have a nourishment that you don't know about yet, but that he is going to teach them about. And so he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And then he makes it clear. Now look down at verse 34. As the disciples are saying in verse 34, What? Huh? Has any man brought him ought to eat? Jesus saith unto them, No, no, men, you don't get it yet. My meat, what nourishes me, my meat, what invigorates me, 
My meat, what strengthens me, are you listening? My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. So Jesus said, I under, and he did. Of course he understood about the need of meat. Of course he would later eat food. Yes, he did. He would take in physical nourishment and such as that. But he is preparing these disciples for future life and future work. And he is showing them that there is a kind of strength and there is a kind of nourishment. And there is a, that which can invigorate a person that has nothing to do with what you get at the market. It has nothing to do with what you consume with your mouth. And he said, men, you're going to have to learn that what is to satisfy you and to what is to bring you strength is to do the Father's will and finish the work that he has for you to do. And Jesus was doing just that. He was wearied with the journey, but he dealt with the woman. He was wearied with the journey, but he didn't take time to consume food. He dealt with the men of Sychar. He was wearied with the journey, but he's taking this occasion to disciple the disciples. Are you listening to this, friend? Jesus is completely pouring himself out and is strengthened by it. I'm not making this up. That's exactly what he said. It was meat to him. It was strength to him. It was invigorating, invigorating to him. It was nourishment to him. It moved him. That's why he left the well, went into Sychar. That's why he stayed there two days. No doubt. I wish we knew the schedule. But pouring himself out to these men. Don't you know they were coming? Don't you know the Samaritans had questions? They thought the Jews were this, and they thought the Jews were that. They thought the Jews taught this, and they thought, and they thought, well, we've been taught this, and we've been taught that. And they had all these questions. Come on, don't act like they didn't. And Jesus would teach them, and he would answer their questions, and he would deal with them. And many, many, it says here twice, many men of Sychar drank of the living water, and they too were saved. And Jesus said, this is not uh, this is not wearing me down. This is not wearing me out. It is nurturing me. <laughs> it is nourishing to me. Well, how could that be? Well, because these were not just words. They were reality. I came to do the will of my Father. And what satisfied him more than anything would be the will of his Father. What would satisfy him more than a good night's sleep? What would satisfy him more than a meal in a hungry stomach? What would satisfy him more than fresh water from a well when he's very thirsty? What superseded all of that was to know. I have done my Father's will and finished the work. This is probably really weird, but I, I think I got just a little taste of that. Uh, I remember the summer I turned 16. Back in June, we would have been the wheat harvest and stuff, and we had some rain. So, you know, he's kind of shut down and not doing much and on a rainy day when we'd rather been out cutting wheat my dad said to me he said uh, Sam get ready we're going to you're going to go to Enid which is the big town that we'd always go to it's 40,000 people about uh, 40 miles away and he said we're going to go to Enid and mom's going to do some shopping and 
and you're going to go with us. Well, uh, what about if I just stay home and if it quits raining, I can go fishing or something like that? No, you're going with us. Well, I had two older brothers, 18 years older than me, and I, when my dad says, you're going, then I just figured, I'm going. So I said, okay, and got in the car and wasn't sure what was going on. Went over there and we got to Enid and my dad, as we get to the outskirts of town, says to my mom, do you have that address and how to get there? And my mom said, yeah, pulls this deal out of her purse. We go to this house, pull up there in the driveway. My dad says, you come with me, Sam. We get out and go and knock on the door and a precious little lady comes to the door and says, uh, yes. And my dad says, I have an ad here for a 1950s Chevrolet uh, car do you still have that car? She said, well, I sure do. Well, are you interested in selling the, still selling the car? Yes, I am. And my dad said, could we drive the car? And uh, I, my, the little lady said, well, of course you can. She gave my dad a key and he went out and unlocked it. Oh, those were difficult days. You had to unlock the garage door and then reach down and actually pick it up. Uh, it's just terrible to have to do that. But anyway, some of you missed that. Okay, so anyway, we look at, and here's this 50 Chevy. Now this is 1961, and there's that 50 Chevy, Pastor. 26,000 miles on it. I mean, it is sweet. It is sweet. It looks like an old grandma's car, but I could already see this thing has potential, you know. And I wanted a V8, but my dad said, you're not getting a V8 as long as you're living in this house. So anyway, that's another story. And so my dad backed out the car, and he started driving it around, and man, it was just solid and good and everything. And I said, what are we doing, Dad? And he said, I'm gonna, we're getting you a car today. And I'd turned 16 a few weeks in August, and he said, we're getting you a car. So uh, he went back and talked to the lady, wrote her out a check for $350, and uh, bought that car. We drove it home. Well, man, oh, man, I was pretty fired up about this. And we got home, and uh, that night I went upstairs, and I got my checkbook out, and I had some pigs and animals, livestock, you know, I was an FFA and everything, and I had some money. And so I wrote a check to my dad for $350, and I came down the stairs, and I uh, had this check written out, made out to my dad, and I said, here you go, Dad. And he said, what's this for? And I said, it's for the car. And my dad stood up and took the check and tore it in pieces and threw it in the trash can right by his desk there. And I said, well, I'm, I can pay for the car. And he put his arm on my shoulder. He wasn't the most affectionate individual. He put his arm on my shoulder and he said, Sam, you've worked like a man this summer so far. He said, you've worked like, you've made me so proud. You work like a man. And he said, I'm not giving you that car. You've earned that car. And I can just tell you right now, it's close enough to my dad, I desired more than anything to please my dad. Amen. And I can tell you right now, at that point, my dad's approval meant a lot more to me than that car. It, it truly did. And I remember going upstairs not thinking, wow, I have, I went up to my room. I wasn't thinking, wow, I have my own car. But it's got some work to do to look like a teenager's car, but we'll get that done. I've got my own car. I didn't know what I was thinking. My dad said he's proud of me. I, I, I couldn't get over that. My dad just, he didn't, he, didn't talk, he didn't generally talk like that. And he said, you work like a man and I'm proud of you. And I just thought that means more to me than that car. Now I wasn't a very bright kid. I was only 16 years old, but I figured that out. That is more important than the car itself. Now, what Jesus is saying to those disciples then, living in the Word of God, it says it to all would-be disciples now, is there are, more there are things that are more important than what you can eat. There are things more important than what you can drink. And there are things more important than what you can wear. 
And there are things more important than what you can have. And there are things more important than what you can achieve. And there are things more important than what you might truly enjoy. And there are things more important than a trip you might really like to take or a vacation place you really like to go. There are things more important that, watch me now, that will do more for you than anything else. And that is to do the Father's will and finish the work that He has for you to do. That's what He was doing. That's what He was preparing His disciples to do. And it lives in the Word of God because that's what He expects of you and me. That first and foremost, we learn the gratification of doing the Father's will and finishing the work He has called us to do. Everybody comes to Heartland. If it's a young man that's called to preach and he comes to Heartland, and if I can get him aside and start talking to him, you know one of the first things I'll tell him? Finish what you start. Just make this a practice right now. Finish what you start. The year, first year can be a rough year. It, you can hit some hard spots. Uh, some of them foul up, need to skip school for a part of a semester or a whole semester, come back and try it again. But whatever it takes, finish what you start. And that's the way you ought to be on our life as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. Come on, an authentic disciple of Jesus Christ. Get to the place that I am not here to live unto myself. I am here to live unto Him that died for me and rose again from the dead. And I am a new creature in Jesus Christ. And so the effect that He has changed in my life is that I am not living to go, do all of my goals. Here, here's something contemporary so-called Christianity needs to hear. God does not exist in heaven to make you successful. God does not exist in heaven to make you rich. God does not exist in heaven for you to live in the kind of house you want to live in. You exist for Him, not He for you. And your existence is in Him. He has your breath in His hand. Your heart just beat again because of Him. You're able to take another step because of Him. And there are people that want to act like that God's up there to make sure I get all my goals and all of my ambitions. You might ought to just turn Joel Osteen plumb off. And all the phonies like him. Just turn it off. Spend some time in the Word of God. Jesus said, no, following me, does it cost? Yes. Yes, it costs. Let a man deny himself. That's a cost. It didn't cost you to get saved. It cost him to save you. But it cost to be his follower because self-will has to go. It has to die. We can't be a consumer out here and believe that God exists to give us everything we want. The promotion, the job, the salary, the money, the possessions, the land, the pleasures, the toys, the whole bit. God doesn't exist so we can have all of that. I might just throw this in too. In fact, I not only might, I will. God is not primarily concerned that we feel good all the time. I've been in enough church prayer meetings to know that the vast majority of prayer requests that are given in churches have to do with health and finances. Now, am I acting like that's not important? Nope, I, don't, I didn't bring my prayer list with me. It's in my briefcase out there that I pray with on a daily basis. And do I have people on there with health issues? Well, of course I do. Of course I do. I've had a few health issues myself. Went through a couple of surgeries back in 2017. And the outpouring of thoughtfulness and love and prayers, I greatly appreciated. 
greatly appreciated. I said it's greatly appreciated. But God is not primarily concerned that we feel good all the time or that we have the job we want or have the income we would like to have. That's not His primary concern. The furtherance of His kingdom is His concern. The furtherance of His Word, the work of the gospel, the spreading of the gospel, doing the work of an authentic New Testament church, churches becoming more than Christian social clubs and actually reaching the sinners and the lost. Jesus came to die for sinners. Let's not forget that, friends. This is a faithful saying. I think we've run by this before. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He didn't come to make sure you had perfect health all your life or lived in the kind of house you want to live in or drive the kind of car you want to drive. No, he didn't do that. He didn't, listen, he didn't, he did not come here to give you the kind of relationship you've always dreamed about with somebody. He came here to save sinners. And if you're a follower of his, if that's not at the top of the priority list, then you're not in step with the master who came to do his Father's will and finish the work that he gave him to do. And Jesus is teaching his disciples, read the book of Acts, they learned it. And he's teaching his disciples that, sure, you have to give of yourself. Sure, it can wear on the physical being. Certainly it can. But you will find more nourishment. Here's what he's telling them. You're going to find no more nourishment from what's coming from Sychar, the men that will come out and believe, you're going to find more nourishment from what's coming from Sychar than what you brought from Sychar. Food. Yeah, he said, oh, I like the way that worked out. He said, he's teaching them. And if you don't enjoy this, I do. Man, I'm going to, I'm going to run that by one more time. Then he is saying to them, if, you commit, if you're with me and you commit yourself with me to the Father's will, you're going to find out that what you're going to see in the next couple of days is going to do more for you than what you brought from Sychar. That the Father's work and the Father's will will be more invigorating to you than all the food that's in Sychar. Amen. Amen. You know why I think this is so important? I'm quite sure that we live in the tiredest generation that's ever walked upon the earth. How you doing? Tired, I'm tired. I'm tired. You, you know, if you're a greeter out here, you probably quit asking people, how you doing? <laughs> because you don't really want to know anyway. But uh, then when they start in and just say, well, uh, I'm tired, uh, you know, I just, I'm tired, I'm tired. I'm, I am telling you, it is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I remember, uh, Pastor, some you know, young people coming to me at Heartland and saying to me, uh, Brother Sam, would you pray for my pastor? You've preached in our church. You know our pastor. Would you pray for our pastor? He, he really needs prayer right now. And I would say uh, something like this. I would say, uh, oh, yeah, well, sure. What's, what's the deal? What is it I need? Well, he's just tired. And you know what I would say? Well, good. Good. If a man's not working hard enough to get tired, he ain't worth his salt. What are you talking about? And I, I, I'm sitting there thinking, I'm tired too. What's that got to do with anything? If a man's not working hard enough, if a preacher's not working hard enough to get tired, he's, he's messing around. He's playing some kind of game. Yeah. And we live in this tired generation. Uh, we're having a revival. People come out 
you know, uh, like a meeting like this, I'm not belittling anything or anybody here. I mean, we did Sunday through Wednesday meetings at Southwest quite a bit too. And, and I'm, not, I'm not, but I remember telling our people, let's not act, make us act like it's a big sacrifice. I've heard pastors say up and say, thank you for coming. Number one, why would you thank church members for coming to their own church? I, I, I never did that, thanking them for coming. It's their church. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. I know you've worked hard and you're tired. Well, my dad worked hard and was tired, but his preacher didn't come up and said, bless your heart. You've worked hard. Well, that's all he knew forevermore. Yeah. Just tired generation. And what preachers often do is get in the pulpit and accommodate that poor me mentality rather than saying, you know, the price we're going to pay this week uh, in a revival meeting, trusting the Lord that it will be a revival of sorts. The price we're going to pay is this, two extra nights at church. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. Dear Lord, have mercy. You know what the best meeting we had at Bible Baptist in Stillwater was? Uh, Bible Baptist Stillwater. We started on a Sunday morning, had a preacher I'd never heard preach before. Oh, man, that's a long story. You don't want me to go into that. But, uh, but this guy came to preach, and on Thursday, he and I were having prayer before, the, uh, uh, before uh, the service on Thursday, and we're praying for the end of the revival, which would be Friday. And uh, on Thursday night, I said, uh, you don't have a place to preach this Sunday, do you? He said, no, I don't. And uh, I said, uh, well, the reason I'm asking is, I believe we're supposed to go through Sunday. This meeting needs to go through Sunday. He said, well, I'll pray about it and get back with you tomorrow when we have our prayer meeting. So he was driving back and forth from Oklahoma City, and, and he came back the next day to Stillwater, and we got ready for our prayer meeting, and he said, Brother Sam, I believe you're right. I mean, I checked the schedule, checked with my pastor, and I can be there, and I think we ought to go through Sunday. And I said, I don't. Well, he said, you're the, one, you're the one that brought this up. You don't think we should go through Sunday? No. You think we should go through fr just Friday to, to, tonight? I said, no. We should go through next Wednesday. Went through next Wednesday. And you tell people nowadays, we had a revival meeting. I mean, Saturday night included. And we had a revival meeting Sunday through Sunday and the second Wednesday. And the, and the first part of the week, uh, the first part of that meeting, we had people saved. I mean, we had people saved every service. It was amazing, baptizing people. And then the Sunday through Wednesday, it was church revival. I mean, our church just, it, it, God dealt with our people in a way. And I'm thinking, Lord, just a minute. This is opposite of how I've always preached it. God's people get right with God, and then people get saved. God said, I'm God. I can do anything I want to. I can save the sinners and get my people right with God. He can do that, you know. And how about we just let God work instead of making sure that everything ought to be about the fact that we don't wear ourselves out and get tired. Now, it's, a, it's okay if you go to a Cowboys game somewhere, or it's okay if you drive halfway across the country to see the Sooners or the Longhorns or whoever it might be play football, and then come back and drag yourself into church and then sleep the rest of the service. That, that's one thing there. But let's not wear ourselves out serving God. Well, let me just tell you, Jesus said, don't worry, you won't. Because if it's genuine, if it's authentic, it will be nourishment to your soul that's what it'll be and he was teaching then he's teaching now that his disciples need to understand this when you give yourself in devotion 
to do God's will in relation to your church life, in relation to your service, in relation to serving the Lord. Listen to me, friend. You give yourself to doing that. Jesus said, it will be, it will be meat that you have not henceforth known. It will nurture you, not wear you out. Do I ever go to bed physically tired? Oh, yes. Good grief. Yes. Brother Jonathan asked me, what about your hours when you was pastoring and traveling, had heartland and everything? I said, nah, it was ridiculous. And I remember some Sunday nights, wonderful day. I mean, wonderful day at church. Sunday night, our favorite service. Just, I'm so grieved by all the churches shutting their doors on Sunday night. That is so sad. And our Sunday night was like a revival every Sunday night at Southwest Baptist Church. And I can remember sitting at home and sitting in my recliner or in the couch and saying to my wife and say, I got you something to eat here. I said, I can't move. <laughs> can you bring it to me? And the answer was always no. But anyway, <laughs> I, I, I said, I, I, don't even, I don't even know if I can get up and go to bed or not. And I would say, but this feels so good. This is so good. I never had tired feel so good that at the end of a Lord's Day that started at 4.30 in the morning and gets us home about 10.30 at night and preach and teach and talk to people before church and after church, it'd take us a good hour and 15 minutes to get away from church on any given Sunday and Wednesday night and just give and give, go home and just be <laughs> barely able to move and say, man, this is great. And I would say to Sandra, we, this happened more than once, can you believe what we get to be a part of? Can you believe this? Physically exhausted, but so what? That's why you go to bed and get a good night's sleep and get up and go at it. Inside, couldn't wait for the next service. You understand what I'm saying? That's what Jesus is talking about. Well, I had to drop out because I just got tired. I used to do this and that, but I tell you, I just got tired. Now, I know there comes a time in life I may be getting close to it. I expect in the next 10 years I may take a different approach to preaching and ministry and everything that I'm doing. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when you have strength and you have health and you have the ability and you have the wherewithal to give yourself completely to the Lord. Amen. Jesus didn't say this will wear you down, friend. Amen. That's not what he said. He said it'll nurture you. It's meat to eat that most people never understand. Ooh, that's good. It's meat to eat that the unlearned and the unbeliever have no clue about it. No clue. None at all. That's what Jesus is teaching them. Now, I've got to move on. I've got to do this fast. Good night. You were slow in listening to that part. Uh, look down here in verse number 34. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and finish his work. Now, watch this. This is quite a jump from verse 34 to 35, Say not ye there yet four months, and then cometh the harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up. How do we get from meat to harvest? The master, eat. And Jesus said, No, I have meat to eat that you know not of. My meat is to do the will of the Father that sent me, to finish his work. Say not ye there, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest? Lift up your eyes and look on the field, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. Watch this. And he said, and herein is the saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. Jesus said, I sent you 
I'm assuming that he was talking about when he sent them into Sychar. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. Now, excuse me just a second. I'm quite convinced that the disciples didn't even know they were going to Samaria until they were in Samaria or well on their way. They had no clue what was going on. They were probably disturbed that they were going into Samaria. Maybe some of them afraid because of the disdain and spite and hate that the Samaritans had for the Jews. And here they go in there, and Jesus says, I want you to go into Sychar. Now they went in to buy food, but what is going to happen from his time there at Sychar? What's going to happen is many are going to get harvested. I'm borrowing from him, sowing and reaping. There's a harvest that's going to come. And many believed on him. Well, that's the harvest. That's the gathering in. Somebody say amen so I don't have something to preach on that so long. And, and that's the gathering in. So Jesus is saying to them, I, I'm going to have you go into, so I've sent you to, to reap where you didn't even sow. We just got to here. Now, if you're going to... If you're going to have a harvest, here be the thinking disciples. If you're going to have a harvest, then you've got to have sowing, and you've got to have watering, and you've got to have then the harvest. And we just got here. So basically, the attitude of the disciples would have been this. Uh, Sychar isn't ready. Sychar is needy, but it's not ready. Jesus said, it's needy and ready. Because there's already been sowing going on. Who'd been there sowing? Prophets. See, just northwest of Sychar is a town, Samaria. Well, Samaria is the capital for the northern kingdom after the kingdom divided. And that's where King Ahab and other kings resided, was in Samaria. <clears throat> and during the time of the division of the nation of Israel, and as long as the northern kingdom lasted, 150 years, a little more, as long as it lasted, who came through there and preached to them? Who called them back from their idolatry? Who gave them the Word of God? I'll tell you who gave them the Word of God. The prophets did. They had prophets like Elijah. They had prophets like Elisha. They had prophets like Micaiah. They had prophets that would come and preach to them. And they were under the ministry and under the preaching of these prophets that would come through. Now, what do you think the prophets talked about? Well, did the prophets come out and just use the name Messiah or the Savior or the Anointed One? No, but all the preaching of all the prophets was eventually pointing to the coming of their Messiah. And the fact that they should turn from their idolatry and be prepared to receive the Messiah. And so, listen to this. This city of Samaria and these Samaritans, they'd heard preaching before. I said they'd heard it before. Even after the divided kingdom. Excuse me. Even after the Samarian, I'm sorry, the Assyrians came and overthrew the northern kingdom. And they scattered here and there. The prophets were still preaching. Isaiah sent out the message that God gave to him and Zech, Hezekiah the king. He sent it out to wherever there were Jews, of, uh, of, to whatever degree they were Jews. Sent the message everywhere. 
the message of Isaiah. Well, nobody talked about the coming of the Messiah more than Isaiah. And the message went everywhere. So see, there had already been some sowing done. The disciples hadn't figured that out, but Jesus knew it. And he says to them, oh, there's been some preparation. You're going to get to reap a harvest where you didn't even sow. Yeah. You didn't have to work the ground. You haven't done anything. You've done nothing. And you're going to reap the harvest. So many men got saved. Twice many men got saved. Come on, if one person gets saved in that wonder, how come you're not uh, wonderful? And then how come we're not getting excited that many got saved and believed in him? Many did. Amazing. Wow, that's something in Sychar. Well, it's something anywhere. This crowd over here, they just don't seem to enjoy my approach to things here. Well, it's something exciting no matter where it is. See how they react? Now, come on, y'all. Step it up over here. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the reason I'm saying that is he's still able to save. He, he will still save souls. I mean, I've got a, a list of notes I had last night. I got a whole list of people whose lives were changed and people that we saw saved. And there was a time when Southwest Baptist Church was, you know, we were having an attendance of 2,000 and more week after week. And I, I've seen it where one sinner, a guy by the name of Louie, got saved and shook up most of our church. One guy. Some of the students brought him to friend day. And he wasn't going to come. He, no, he didn't want anything to do with that. I don't want anything to do with scoff, mock, laugh, 50-some years old. Tattoos on his earlobes and everywhere you could possibly imagine. Tattoos being, and he was of that mindset. And he was vain and profane. And one of our students finally said to him, uh, said, uh, said to him, what did I say his name was, Sandra? Huh, Louis? Yeah, Louis. Said, Louis, uh, <laughs> Louis, you know why you won't come to friend day? You're not man enough. You're afraid to come. I ain't afraid of nothing. Well, fine, prove it. So he came. Came back that night and got saved. <laughs> and just shook the place up. I remember when Jack Coppock got saved, 72 years old when he got saved. And we baptized him. And he became a student at Heartland. <laughs> he, he wanted to learn. He wanted to know. So he audited classes and came out to class. Oh, and, and one man, Jack Coppock, got saved at age 72, and just shook up a whole congregation. Excuse me. And there may not be enough excitement going on in these days when a sinner gets saved. Now, it's still shaking up heaven when one sinner repents. It probably ought to stir a backslidden Baptist up every once in a while to see somebody come and humble themselves before God and get saved. It might be that we want to get rid of our cool look, and I'm too, uh, I am a non-emotional person. Yeah, sure you are. Yeah, you got emotional buttons. You push the right one, you're up there. Yes! And going wild. How come we don't have a spiritual emotional button so when a sinner gets saved, we're fired up about that? Huh? They got saved. Well, we live in a different day now, that's for sure. This is the 21st century, you know. Yeah, yeah, you know what the 21st century is like? Much like the 20th. People need the gospel. The gospel still has the power. People will get saved if they're confronted about their sin and about salvation. There are some that believe. Sometimes there are many that believe. 
do we have to have the majority getting saved to prove that this is a worthwhile work? Or is not one sinner, I'm asking you the question, based upon the authority, does not one sinner coming to Jesus Christ cause rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God in heaven over one sinner that repents? And you know why more sinners are not coming? There aren't many in the harvest. Jesus saw the multitudes. You've heard it many times. And he was moved with compassion upon them because he saw them as sheep having no shepherd. And he said, here's a prayer request that ought to be at the top of our church prayer request list. Pray you therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his field. Driving around this area would make a lot of preachers drool. The houses, the building, the new people coming in. I dare say, I, I dare say, and, I, and we preach in towns and places of all sizes, but I dare say you get more visitors by, I'm going to say accident, but you know what I mean by that. Please say yes, so I'm not looking for a word. Okay, you get, more, you get more visitors by accident than most churches get working hard. Yeah. There's a harvest out there. There is. In fact, there's a harvest everywhere. I could take you to Falls City, Nebraska. How many of you have ever been there? Falls, a truck driver, anybody been through there? Yeah, it's over northeast of St. Joe, Missouri, a few miles from Nebraska City. Don't know that one either. Okay. Well, it's pretty much out nowhere. Kansas is below with a little community after a little community. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's out there. Falls City. Population, 4,200, 4,300, something like that. Ben Moore, a bus kid that got saved at Southwest. Married well. And... Uh, and got called to preach. He's in Nebraska City. He went there because Bill Marshall had him on staff and sent him there to help take care of this church and then said, Ben, you ought to just stay there. So he's in this little town of 4,200 uh, people there, and he hated every minute of it, but thought, well, this is what my pastor wants me to do, and no doubt I can learn. I can learn to preach and stuff like that better, and on and on. And after about three, four years, all of a sudden, he just came before God and said, I do not want to waste my life. And God didn't say, well, then I'll take you to a bigger place. and I'll take you to the city of your desire. He said, look at who's here. You don't even know most of the people here. You should have known these people. You should get it done. And he got a new burden, got a new heart. You ought to see what's going on there. It's amazing. In a town of 4,200, 4,300 people. And everybody, not everybody in town goes there, but they all know where the church is of that town. No, there are Lutheran churches and Methodists and stuff like that. And there's a Baptist church dead in a graveyard there that meets on Sunday morning and that's about it. And that, I mean, that, that's about it. There's, they're not bumping into people running around knocking doors and trying to run buses and reach people. And Ben's just like, like picking fruit, led one after another, after another. I went there to preach the first time. Couldn't wait because I love being. He preached his brother's funeral. He was killed in Iraq. And wonderful young man. And, and we love Ben. Ben's a wonderful guy. 
And I couldn't wait to go preach there. And I was preaching away that Sunday morning. You know, he probably had at that point 70, 65, 70 people there. And I'm preaching away and they've been praying for sinners and for people they're trying to reach. And they were fervently trying to reach them and spending time with them. And I'm preaching away and I give the invitation and I hear this commotion back. Oh, just stand there. I thought, oh man, what is going on? I look back there and here's this old guy that's a, a Vietnam vet and he's getting up and he's hobbling down. He's got a cane and he's coming down the aisle. He said, I can't take this anymore. I can't take it anymore. I just can't take it anymore. Ben's been trying to reach him and the church has been praying for him. And he said, I can't take it anymore. And he got down there and got saved. I mean, he got saved. I went back two years later and the first person that greeted me at the door was that old timer right there. Yeah, him and then two other young ladies that got saved in the same meeting. Those were the first people to greet me there. Two years later, there they are. Yeah, the harvest is there. You know what is needed? people that'll go after them. My wife and I have been traveling around all over the place and I told the pastor, here's what we've learned. Where people are trying to reach sinners and reach lost souls and reach the unchurched, they're winning some and they're reaching some. Where churches are not reaching them, they're making excuses to why you can't do it nowadays. Well, pastor said, people are so busy now. You, You know, you just can't get workers like you used to because people are so busy these days. They're just on the go and on the go. And I just want to get them by their suit and shake them and say, I never met anybody busier than my dad. I was born in 1945, a town of 5,000 people. My dad worked like a dog to feed six kids. Sharecropper, we didn't own our own land, have a bunch of money coming in. I asked my dad after 42 wheat crops, Dad, how many years did you actually make money? He said, two. I'm talking about actually making money, not surviving. That's what we did most of the time. And then people tell me, well, people are so busy now. Busy doing what? Being busy? Yeah, but the, the, you, you got to, I even had a lady tell me, my husband actually works for a living. <laughs> That's why when people do stuff, you better learn to laugh, you know, at them or with them or whatever the case. And yeah, my husband actually works for a living. Well, I can't have, then why isn't he a preacher? He wouldn't have to work. Nothing to it. <laughs> you know, but, but I'm saying, we, we, God's people nowadays need to get a good dose of this. That, that what, is, what will feed you and nurture you is doing God's will. And when people go into a mode of self-preservation to make sure they preserve their energy, their strength, their time, excuse me, they're doing it so that they can give their best to the job, so that they can buy that better place, so that they can go on that particular trip, so they can have these certain toys, so they can do this and that, and their labor and their effort is about things that perish. And Jesus said, you're missing on what can nurture and nourish your soul. Give yourself to the authority of Jesus Christ. Live to do His will, and you'll have meat that you know not of. And there's a need for labors, because there are people to be saved. I'm done after I tell you this.
as a kid growing up, I looked forward to harvest that much more than I looked forward to Christmas. I loved harvest time. The combines, the wheat, they're coming in and disking behind the combines. I got to do it uh, three times with my dad when after we'd get our land disc, we'd have about six, 700 acres of wheat, maybe two or 300 acres of uh, oats and barley and stuff, get that done, disc it, load up the combines with my dad's brother, and we'd go to southwest Kansas and do some custom combine. Oh, I loved it. Man, oh man. Out there in the wheat field and among my dad, my uncle, my brother, and we're out there just and just pouring ourselves. The last, last time we went there was 1916. We were there 14 days. Every day for 14 days, it was 100 degrees. This is 1960. 100 degrees before noon every day for 14 straight days. We were cutting wheat. And we'd get my dad get us up at 4 o'clock in the morning. We'd be out there, and you could be in the field because it was hot and dry. You could be in the field as soon as you could get there. And then we cut till 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Go home, crash uh, to a, the little place you're staying, crash, go right back out. And uh, I loved every minute of it. I, <laughs> oh, I loved it. I was talking about that one time and about loving the harvest. And um, in Missouri, and Sam Gibson came up to me. His dad's a pastor, a wonderful guy, Tim Gibson. And Sam Gibson came up to me and he said, Brother Sam, I hear you talk about the harvest. He said, I'll tell you, uh, here in our part of the country, he said, I hate it when harvest comes. Trucks and equipment are on the highway. I'm trying to do my job. I've got to drive here and drive there. All these people are blocking the highway and trucks and tractors and combines. You can't get past them. And uh, it, just, it just gripes me to death. Uh, and if I'd have been man enough, I'd have tried to whoop him, I think, but he was like this, you know, so I, but I wouldn't whip him. I'm just saying, Sam, you got to be kidding. He said, yeah, but I figured out why people like you and my dad really loved the harvest, and I never did like harvest time. Why? He said, I've never invested in the harvest. You and your dad did. Your dad had you working out there, and my dad used to work with his dad, and they worked, and they had a big investment in the harvest. So when the harvest time came, my goodness, this is the apex right here. I mean, this is it. We're bringing in the harvest. That's it. It's what we've been laboring for, worked the ground for, did everything for. And this is it. This is our livelihood right here. This is what, and he said, I never had any investment in it. And you know why so many Baptist church, churches have people like this? When you're talking about souls, labor, work, winning people, serving Jesus, pouring yourself out. It's like this. All to reach souls, all to reach the unchurched, unsaved. Also, the people might know what Jesus can do for them. You know why many are like this? They've never invested in the harvest. They never invested in it. Jesus said, pray. Nothing is more clear than this. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to figure this out. Pray you therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth labors into the harvest. That means there is a harvest to be had. Amen. And whether it is, uh, whether it is, what's in it, Hazlitt, Texas, or Oklahoma City, or Falls City, Nebraska, the crying need is labors that will understand there is a meat 
there is a refreshing, there is a nurturing, there is a nourishing that can only come from doing the Father's will and finishing the work that He has for us to do. Father, I pray that You would bless this time that we've had here together. And neither would I would it be my intent to preach this in a way that I think nobody is working or nobody wants to work. Obviously, there are people that are serious about the labor and the harvest. I'm thankful for that. But I'm as confident that there are folks that have withdrawn their involvement and gone into a mode of self-protection and once we do that, we've ceased following you. No one protects himself and follows Jesus. We give of ourselves. Now, that's what you taught those disciples. And we have to believe that it's in the Word of God, in the living Word, preserved in the living Word of God, because that's what you still expect of your disciples. And I'm reminded of Solomon's words when he said, cast thy bread upon the waters. Take your life, fling it into his purposes and will. If you look at the clouds and you measure the weather, you won't sow and you won't reap. But he said, sow, go, give yourself. And there'll be late fruit for the labor. There'll be a harvest. God, I pray that you'd work in lives. There are men in this room that would be dynamic in talking to others about their soul. There are women here that could reach other women that will never listen to a preacher or maybe even let one in their house. Oh, God, I pray that your people would just simply avail. All we can do is avail ourselves and say, here am I, Lord. Use me. And then get into the harvest. Be where the people are. Tell them about what Jesus does, what he has done, what he has done in your own life, what he has done in history, what he will do in their life. Lord, I pray that you give workers and laborers. I pray that the Sunday school of this church would be effective and grow. I pray that in this incredibly strong, growing area, that the day would soon come. There's not enough room here, not just to have a big congregation, but there are people that need you. I pray that you would help and work I pray, for the, I, I pray for the saint that is sitting in the pew tonight knowing this is to me. This is to me. I'm not going to not go to church, but neither am I going to get into the field. I'm not going to stop going to church. No way. It would be a bad thing for my kids. But neither am I going to get myself soiled being in the harvest field. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work and accomplish your will. If there's somebody here that needs to be saved, may they come and let us take the Bible and show them the words of eternal life. 
there are believers that need to do business before you, humbly before you, God, may it be done before we walk out of this place tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we?